ultimately, the difference between now and then, though, which shouldn't be underestimated, is the Fed has a track record of breaking the rules when it matters. If your base case is that we're going to allow a significant amount of pain for rich people, you're foolish. The Fed broke the rules and started buying corporate bonds. It's sort of a distillation of psychopathy. You have to literally bluff the health and well-being of the entire financial system in order to make a few more bucks for you. But that's what happens, and, and it happens over and over again. And so moral hazard is real, and one wonders how it all ends. Welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. Now, on to today's episode. Welcome back to the Gold Exchange Podcast. My name is Benjamin Nadelstein. I'm joined today by founder and CEO of Monetary Metals, Keith Weiner. And we are joined for the first time by a chicken, Doomberg. Welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast. Benjamin, Keith, great to be here. Um, looking forward to a really great discussion today. Thanks. If you guys don't know Doomberg, you've been living under a rock somehow. Uh, you have to go to Twitter, follow him right now. And obviously the incredible Substack where you can get all their great pieces, incredible titles. Uh, and Doomberg, let's jump right in today. So Jerome Powell has been pretty serious so far when it comes to following through on the rate hikes. He comes out, he says, we're going to do a rate hike, and then they do a rate hike. Do you think that the rate hikes continue? And if so, what will actually make the Fed pivot and go back towards the zero bound? It's uh, obviously the question du jour on Twitter and in the macro commentary landscape. And you know, I, I, Jim Bianca put a pretty amazing chart out, which um, I wish I could reference here, but it shows what the market is pricing for future interest rates versus what Jerome Powell is expressing to the market uh, with respect to where he thinks rates will go. I think the big question now is is not whether the Fed goes much higher from here, but how long they could keep rates at these levels before something breaks in the economy and um, and it forces some sort of a pivot. But I, it must be said, most of Fintwit um, and and the sort of uh, the content creator universe around the, the finance world has been expecting a pivot for the better part of the last year, and um, we are seeing things break uh, in in the economy. We've seen pretty substantial banks fail. We've seen what happened with the gilt market in the UK. We've seen, um, obviously, you know, Blackstone and, and the uh, real estate trust that they have and, and the trot of the bank that's ongoing there. We're starting to see the signs. Um, and yet, Jerome Powell, the market just doesn't believe what he says. He gets up to the mic. He says what he is going to do. Then he does it. And then the market is sort of surprised. Uh, that surprise dissipates rather quickly. And then we get back into risk on, you know, Reddit uh, meme stonks uh, rallying 20, 30, 40% over the period of weeks. And then Jerome Powell comes back out and says what he said the last time, only this time he really means it. And then, you know, we're, it's a very strange cycle. And I think, you know, looking back at this time period, two, three, four, five years from now is going to be very fascinating. Yeah, I, I, I don't think we're going to see much in the way of increased rate hikes from here for the only reason that, you know, the U.S. federal government can't exist at these at these rate levels for very long. And so ultimately... Push will come to shove. What that shove will be is the great question, of course. And uh, starting to see cracks in the shadow banking system inside. There's uh, Japan. Um, um, yeah, it, it. There's a lot going on right now. It's very difficult to model the the the, the supposed move away from the U.S. dollar and BRICS. It, it just really is just a lot of flows right now. And and as as a content creator, of course, it's a great time to be in business because there's sorts <laughs> of things to write about. But um, at the same time, it's also really really impossible to model in our view. If I could just jump in, what do you make of the, what do they call it? Is it the term bank 
where, where they basically said to the banks, okay, we will take your uh, treasury bonds at par value and lend. They're not calling it repo. They called it some sort of term bank loan facility or something like that. Uh, but they're basically giving the banks 100% of the cash value at the, what the price the banks paid for those bonds back in 2020. Um, and so we had Daniel DiMartino Booth on uh, recently, and she says, not QE. And um, my take is, okay, they may not call it QE, but in the sense, Powell is take a thing with one hand saying we're still hiking rates, but on the other hand, we're essentially buying, although they're calling it, you know, repo, um, you know, bonds back at the low interest rates and high bond prices. How do you, how do you so read that? We also had Daniel DiMartino Booth on for a, a Doom Zoom Pro webinar that we have for our, our pro tier, and um, she made a 30 slide presentation, which was fascinating. She's one of, you know, obviously there's many great thinkers out there. She's one that is a must listen to, a must read, must watch, must listen to whenever she's on a podcast, you know. Um, our view is, is obviously, look, we're not banking experts. Um, we consume a lot of content and we have our own personal experience with banking, but the view there is that is that um, program is about drawing a line in the sand. We had this mini run on large regional banks and that caused many people in the economy uh, who have deposits in excess of FDIC insurance coverage limits to ponder whether they shouldn't just up and move all of their funds to the too big to fail banks. I mean, that the, the Janet Yellen testimony in front of Congress was a real watershed moment um, and a potentially really dangerous one. Now, this program that's made available to the banks is all about ensuring that we don't see a, a, a contagion of bank failures. So uh, why is First Republic still trading and not yet been seized, even though there's been a massive flight of deposits over that bank? I do believe that they've drawn a line in the sand. The crypto-related banks were allowed to fail, and um, they do not want to see a run on regional and community banks. And so, um, you know, as we've said oftentimes, when staring into the abyss and the choice is, is, is between launching into that abyss and or breaking the law or bending the law, um, the Fed um, will always bend or break the law. And, and there's something very strange about First Republic. It's sort of this bank that um, has seen a run but was not allowed to fail. And um, I think they're playing a bit of a confidence game to try and stop contagion. And so this specific program that you're asking about does come with pretty punitive interest rates for the banks that pledge those um, those securities, which, by the way, they were encouraged to invest in, you know, like um, mm -hmm. a regulatory failure here in the sense that it's not like these people just decided to go and reach for yield. They were highly encouraged. And in fact, the financing of the federal deficit requires some buyer of these of these uh, of these notes. And um, you know, obviously, there was a full range of of talent and and prudence, and the most imprudent banks have failed. And that is a message to other banks to be more prudent about how you manage your duration risk relative to the flightiness of your deposits. Um, but you know, I, I do think for the stability of the financial system, the Fed is very, very hesitant to let any more banks fail, even if they should. And and it's the classic conundrum of um, you know, um, are we teaching these banking executives all the wrong lessons? You know, if they YOLO their um, excess deposits into higher yields and the, and, it, and it works in their favor, they get rich um, by selling their stock and, and exercising their options. And if they fail, ultimately, the public sort of takes the brunt of it on the chin. Um, yeah, so the, the ultimate uh, heads I win, yeah. lose. 
well, uh, you know, private uh, profit, socialized their... losses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and so there's a danger in that. Now, having said that, nobody wants to be signature bank. I have friends who are executives at banks, and um, and nobody wants to wake up one day and find out that their bank is seized and they're out of a job and their stock and their options are zeroed out and they're probably going to be hauled in front of Congress uh, to testify and their careers have this taint for the rest of their lives. So there is moral hazard, um, but it's very clear in our view that there has been a, a proactive decision to stop the contagion, which is probably good. I mean, who wants to go into the abyss? Now, having said that, we seem to be caroling from, you know, narrowly avoiding the abyss to narrowly avoiding the abyss. And ultimately, there's sort of a deeper structural root cause here, which is, you know, um, too much debt in the system. And and this the entire system integrated over the system is insolvent, but it's in everybody's interest to keep the can down the road in perpetuity. And as Japan has showed, uh, in perpetuity can be measured in decades. Uh, and so uh, it's it, a dangerous trade to assume that the abyss is coming, uh, in our view. Right, it's coming, but not necessarily tomorrow morning. So something I've, I've written about and you just touched on is the banks were strongly encouraged to buy these long-duration treasury bonds back in August of 2020. Do you um, have any specific knowledge where the banking supervisors actually ordering the banks to buy that stuff or was it kind of a nudge or is I'm, I'm not privy to any of those kind of conversations? No, I, I don't think it was that um, sort of overt. And the fact that we have a wide dispersion of banks that have either really managed their duration risk well and look great right now and some like Silicon Valley Bank that were just, you know, outliers and, and ultimately failed tells you that it wasn't forced. Um, if you take Australia, for example, there it was a little more overt in the sense that the central bank of Australia all but told the public that interest rates, you know, won't rise for a certain period of time. And then everybody dove in and refinanced uh, with floating rates. And then they were forced to break the peg and everybody got screwed. And, and the, you know, the central bank of Australia literally apologized to people for their previous statements, but that's not what happened here in the U S I don't think. Um, but the, the whole sort of, you know, what's acceptable capital and how much you have to hold and so on. Like there's ways that the banking sector could be coaxed into essentially financing the deficit of the federal government. Um, and when you're with the reserve currency, you have all kinds of privilege and you could get away with that for much longer and, and, and so on. But, you know, if you, if you look at what sort of happened in Argentina before, like the, the, the latest of their, you know, collapses, the banks were kind of forced to finance the, the deficit because they just altered the capital rules around what um, various holdings meant and what flexibility that gave the banks. And so um, we're not quite there yet. The, the, um, Coercion, you know, the, the forcing of this is, is not yet there, um, and, and and I do think that's why you see such a wide dispersion of of how these regional banks are are um, handling the rapid increase in interest rates. Now, all of this goes away if interest rates collapse. Of course, all these mark to market losses suddenly become, um, uh, you know, uh, not losses or gains even if, if interest rates um, drop far enough. And so, that's why I think the market is pricing lower interest rates than the Fed is um, is managing. Uh, you know, trying to manage the message around, um, but uh, we shall see. This is the, again, this tug of war has been going on for the better part of a year, Keith. As I'm sure you've seen, like yeah. the market has been waiting for a pivot forever, and and he just keeps going up to the microphone and saying, "I'm not going to pivot." And at what point does the market actually believe him? It it's really fascinating and and totally on you know, it's just unprecedented. It it's a truly amazing situation. I, I think one of the issues is there's. There's only really robust demand for credit, at least in the private sector, on a downtick in the interest rates. 
So interest rates run up, you know, because because Powell's forcing them. But unlike in the 1970s, in order to get a durable rising, you know, cycle of prices and interest, every time prices go up, you have to have people bidding all the more aggressively. And every time interest goes up, you have to have corporate borrowers bidding it up all the more aggressively. But here, you know, where's the corporate demand for fresh new credit? Who's opening up new warehouses or new factories or new restaurants with doing more of it the more that interest rates rise? Well, worse than that, because the banks aren't um, aren't following those rise in available interest rates, what they pay on their deposits, we're right. seeing a, a flight out of banks. And when the, most of the regional, mo most of the lending in the U.S. that matters at the small business level is done at regional and community bank level. And they, when their deposits shrink, they stop lending. And when those banks stop lending, the economy contracts. And that's the real, you know, back to DiMartino Booth, um, that was the case she was making, that we're seeing the beginnings of a credit crunch and um, and that that's not really priced in in anybody's sort of scenario. And, and the analogy um, is sort of like in between when Bear Stearns collapsed and Lehman Brothers collapsed, everyone's like, oh, okay, this is contained. Um, you know, <laughs> maybe we'll we'll muddle through. Maybe sub, subprime is contained, and and so on. And so, um, are we there? Um, I don't know. I mean, it sort of feels very similar. I was a, an executive in a publicly traded company at that time, and um, God knows that was a true crisis. And you're watching your, you know, when when you're an executive, obviously your entire net worth is wrapped up in the company stock. And when the company stock drops 85, 90, 95 percent in the span of six months, you you. Yeah, you have a, a couple of glasses of whiskey and look in the mirror and ponder your life decisions, right? And um, and one wonders, you know, um, whether we're in that moment between Bear Stearns and when Lehman collapsed uh, uh, or not. And, and ultimately, the difference between now and then, though, which shouldn't be underestimated, is the Fed has a track record of breaking the rules when it matters. Like in the post-COVID lockdown, the Fed broke the rules and started buying corporate bonds. And that act, which was patently illegal, um, was a turning point in stemming the crisis. And so you can't just look at the existing rule set and say, the Fed is trapped and ergo, we're going to go into the abyss because you 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 must not underestimate the creative license with which certain laws and regulations simply won't apply if the pain is is perceived to be high enough. That, that kind of, I think there's an analogy to playing chess against yourself. When you say, ha I got him. <laughs> He's going to have to fall into my checkmate because... It, you know how you want the other side to move. Exactly. But of course, if you're playing against another human being, they don't they don't make that convenient move that you want them to make. They do something else. And I was going to say, we're talking about mark-to-market losses. Suspension of mark-to-market was, you know, touted as the as as if not the fix, certainly a big fix in the coming out of the last crisis. And if you look at when FASB changed the rules, talking about changing rules. That was almost to the day that the market bottom ticked and, you know, went on to this incredible bull market post 2009, was they said, oh, you don't have to mark your uh, losses to market anymore. You can just say it's hold to maturity. And so they were fixing the symptom, I guess, of, of that crisis and then sowing the seeds for another crisis whose root is now born in, well, we don't have to mark our losses to market if we just declare that it's hold to maturity. Well, that's why this new Fed program only feeds that moral hazard, because everybody now knows that when push comes to shove, a few banks will fail. But um, at the first sign of contagion, they will change the rules, right? And and so whether or not it is QE, <clears throat> it is 
a further message from the Fed to the markets that when push comes to shove, the Fed will do what the Fed deems necessary for financial stability, which means for speculators, um, your objective is to simply get too big to fail. Like if, even if you're in the shadow banking system, if you're, if you're too big to fail um, and you could connect yourself to a too big to fail bank in such a way that your failure would threaten them, uh, you're going to be bailed out. And um, mm -hmm. the psychopathy of doing that deliberately, um, I mean, we have an unblemished track record in history of people pushing the edges of the rules to make money for themselves. And all the all the more harder will they push if they perceive that uh, heads I win, tails the public purse loses. Now, um, the fact that very few people have gone to jail post-financial crisis and uh, the prospect of um, any bankers going to jail now seems preposterous only drives um, – it's sort of a distillation of psychopathy, to be totally, totally honest about it. I mean, I, you have to literally bluff – the health and well-being of the entire financial system in order to make a few more bucks for you. But that's what happens, and, and it happens over and over again. And so moral hazard is real, and, um, and one wonders how it all ends. Um, it, it, and I, by the way, we're not calling for it to end anytime soon. Like I, I, the example of Japan is, I think, instructive here. Like um, There have been people calling for a, a doom, doom loop in, in Japan, a fiscal doom loop in Japan for 30 years. The, the, yeah. widow, the winter maker trade. Winter maker trade, one of many, of course, um, like the Hong Kong depeg trade. Um, and so, it, 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 like, I, I don't think we're anywhere near it. And and all this talk about bricks and um, de-dollarization is interesting and real and insightful. But we're so early. Like, we we're we're in batting practice, pre-game. We're not even in the first inning yet uh, in that regard, in our view. No, absolutely. The, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of Adam Smith's quote. There's a great deal of ruin in the nation, and you know these policies are ruinous. But there's so much accumulated wealth, and wealth is still being created, of course, as well. So it's a race condition, to use the term from software, the race condition between the destruction of capital by you know, caused by these ruinous policies and the perverse incentives versus entrepreneurs, you know, creating more capital. And um, you know, I, I agree. It's definitely not tomorrow morning. Definitely not this year. It's years away, maybe even decades. Um, and meanwhile, you know, the trends are are worrying. And, and to your point, I was going to add one other thing, which is, you know, there's that old expression that history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And as you think about, you know, the the, the coming credit crunch and other problems, are they going to do exactly the same things in exactly the same way that they did in 2008, 2009? Probably not. Are they going to do other things that are similar-ish, you know, that essentially amount to bailouts, but under different names. And I, I was suggesting that this term bank facility, whatever they called it for uh, repo of the, of the treasury bonds is kind of a QE-ish in a way. And okay, they're charging them higher interest rates, but is there any doubt that if those higher interest rates become material to, to harming the banks, that the Fed will then declare that the interest rate, you know, unilaterally, just declare the interest rate being, you know, zero point oh one percent or whatever they feel like. Yeah, you know, no question. No question. And in fact, that is the the most powerful difference between now and during the heat the heat of the panic in 0809, which is the market now believes that given enough pain, 
the Fed will respond. And so it actually decreases the likelihood of that pain materializing, which is why we've seen stocks to hold up amazingly well, despite what all of the sort of macro indicators indicate will be a significant credit crunch, which leads to economic contraction, which leads to a collapse in earnings, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we're seeing stocks hold up actually quite well. We're seeing risk on in the most speculative, uh, they're sort of front running the pivot. And if they're perpetually front running the pivot, do you even need the pivot? Like mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a big difference right now you know, between back then, because back then you didn't know, like we still believe the rules were the rules. I, I have visceral memories of watching the markets in crisis CNBC, you know, every Sunday you were worried about which bank was going to be, you know, taken under by um, which whichever bigger bank. And um, back then, one assumed that the rules still applied, and then then the deductive reasoning, uh, you know, deductive analysis of of the, the sort of cascading contagion really was pretty scary. But the, you you couldn't even ponder that, you know, TARP and all of the other programs and QE and and so on, and that um, that would ultimately be deflationary. I remember I had friends buying physical gold and putting it in shoeboxes because they were assuming that the the fiscal uh, so the monetary system was was on the verge of collapse. And what the big lesson was from back then, which I do believe is top of mind for investors today, is that when push comes to shove, they will break the rules. So the rules aren't instructive for scenario analysis and game planning in the way that they used to be when the rules mattered. The rules don't matter anymore. Now, that has significant long-term negative consequences for the sanctity of our institutions and the ultimate stability of our society. But right. we've, we've proved, right. yeah, we've we've proven, like, if your base case is that we're going to allow a significant amount of pain for rich people, you're foolish. It's just not what's going to happen. <laughs> and so, the market is kind of front running all this too, which is sort of the big difference between between this potential financial crisis and the one that we all were probably shaped by, um, you know, 15 years ago now. Well, Keith, I, I want to jump in there for a second because Doomberg brings up an interesting point, which is that, okay, after 2008, not only did they calm the markets, they kind of stopped the crisis, the panic is over, but actually things looked really great. We had a huge bull run in markets, prices even fell, all these you know crazy gold conspiracy nuts, they all said the, the financial system is going to break, there's going to be hyperinflation, but it didn't happen. Actually, the exact opposite happened. Keith, how could you possibly explain that? <laughs> My argument, Thunberg, I don't know if you've read any of my stuff on this. If 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 you only wanted, if you're only concerned about consumer prices and you're willing to ignore the many, many harmful effects of falling interest rates, you should want falling rather than rising interest rates. You know, the, the nominal driver of, of Powell's hikes today is uh, to, to fix inflation. And um, by hiking the, the cost of capital, by hiking the cost of financing trade, Hiking the, the cost of um, you know, replenishing your, your capital when your when your plant is worn out or adding new uh, by hiking all those costs, ultimately the return on capital has to be greater than the cost of capital. Um, so in 2008, what they did was they cheapened capital, and then what we got is um, you know cheaper cheaper prices or at least uh, a, a downward force on prices, and then of course rising regulatory pressures were, were in the opposite direction. Um, you know, so I'll, I'll let Doomberg uh, comment sure. on that. Well, we, well, of course, you know, um, we're, we're sort of fascinated by and spend a lot of time thinking about energy. And um, 
you know, every nail looks like a, a, something we could hit with our energy hammer. But I, I would say that um, if you view energy as a master resource, lowering interest rates and making liquidity cheap led to the ability to finance um, shale revolution in the oil patch, which led to a macro environment where the world was producing excess energy relative to what it could you know, efficiently use in the near term, which led to highly deflationary environment. And now, ironically, um, as Powell is raising interest rates, it raises that cost of capital, as you said, and the capital that was destroyed in the shale patch, which was really the sort of driver of growth in energy globally for the better part of that decade, um, we're seeing now a pullback in the in the shale patch, which we actually counterintuitively think might actually be pretty inflationary. And so um, that is the transfer mechanism that we observe for low interest rates leading to deflation and high interest rates leading to potentially actually even more inflation, because ultimately we view currencies as overlaying energy transactions and energy being the sort of um, the way in which you um, carve out a high standard of living from an otherwise highly disordered um, uh, environment. Um, uh, we, we're about to test that hypothesis with with oil prices and, and the OPEC cuts and and potentially turning over in the shale patch. I, I was fascinated to listen to the CEO of Pioneer on um, Robert um, on the Power Hungry podcast um, by, by my good friend Robert, his life Bryce uh, Robert Bryce's podcast, and and he was talking about some of the challenges, especially in the Permian Basin and and you know um, taking off of natural gas and so on. And I, and I we view energy as sort of the prism through which everything else can be explained. It's a useful model for us, um, mostly because that's where we come from. Um, but also, I, I do think it does explain a lot, like in, in the post-financial crisis era, with ultra-cheap money and 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 ZERP policy, you could finance a lot of drilling and you could create this gusher of not only oil, but natural gas that the rest of the world was able to, you know, um, access for extraordinarily cheap prices. And, and, and now we're seeing the sort of reverse of that. So. Yeah, that's right. That totally makes sense. Well, let's talk about uh, natural gas for a second. Another widowmaker trade, Doomberg Y. We see, you know, two dollars uh, per million BTU in the U.S., 100 BTU in Europe. At some points, huge arbitrage opportunities. Uh, what, why don't people jump into natural gas when we see this kind of wild swings? Isn't this where people make money? Yeah, we wrote a piece. Um, our our most latest piece here is called "Guilt by Association." Um, one of the challenges is there's such a hunger for oil, and the increment of growth for oil is in the Permian Basin, and in the Permian Basin. Oil comes with a lot of associated uh, natural gas and natural gas liquids. And so a gating function for the production of oil is doing something with that natural gas. Now, natural gas is a gas, which means it's difficult to ship. It's difficult to handle. It's the cleanest of the fossil fuels. It's a wonderful molecule. We all, we all, 60% of US homes, I believe, cook with natural gas indoors. And, and we like to say you wouldn't barbecue indoors you wouldn't burn charcoal indoors, but you burn natural gas indoors. And that tells you just how much cleaner natural gas is and how much of a better fuel it is. We have such an abundance of natural gas in the US that in order to maintain the growth of natural gas in the Permian Basin, we're actually flaring, burning, or in worst cases, venting natural gas directly into the atmosphere, which is a kind of a scandal. Like it. And so the first thing you have to know about natural gas is it's incredibly regional and the price of natural gas is determined by how well connected you are to a pipeline network to people who could use it. And um, environmentalists have, to their credit, 
um, if you're measuring credit by how effective they are at making it difficult for energy producers to give us the life nourishing energy that they so value <laughs> for us. Um, they have been very effective at stopping pipeline projects, postponing pipeline projects, suing, resuing, litigating ones that have already been approved, basically being a nuisance. That we have this amazing situation where um, natural gas is in a glut in Texas. It's not even like Europe and the US. California was paying $55 per million BQ for natural gas as recently as December. And in the Waha hub of the Permian Basin, it's currently priced at a dollar per million BTU. And um, so we have this amazing abundance that through our own mismanagement, we are not able to take advantage of. Same thing with Boston, by the way, you know, New England. They, they import natural gas via LNG from uh, Trinidad and Tobago when they are 200 miles from Marcellus. Like all they need to do is build a pipeline and they could get natural gas for three, four dollars per million BTU and they're paying 10, 20, 30 dollars per million BTU natural gas uh, via LNG because they just refuse to build the pipelines because of nimbyism or, or environmental Malthusian radicalism, pick your favorite descriptor. Um, and so um, the Henry Hub price in Louisiana is just one price. It happens to be that that is the US benchmark. That is the price that is referenced in the ETFs of natural gas that individual investors can speculate in. Um, now, of course, these materials are highly inelastic and we had an unusually warm winter, both in Western Europe and in the US. And um, while people were gearing up for a crisis and storing excess natural gas, the crisis never really came. And also um, these markets are interconnected. So Europe, Germany in particular, uh, retreated to the coal mines and brought back on 16 gigawatts of coal power. And that reduced the need for natural gas, which then all of a sudden you had all these people you know, the classic boom bust cycle of, hey, natural gas for export at an LNG terminal is going for 20, 30, 40, 50, $60 per million BTU. Uh, my cost is, you know, a buck 50. I'm going to drill as much as I can. Everybody makes that decision at the same time. Demand doesn't materialize and then you have a glut. And so, um, but in the US in particular, it is a heterogeneous policy around pipelines that is trapping natural gas uh, in certain regions and starving natural gas from where it's desperately needed, like California and in New England. And, uh, and, and, and so we have this really amazing situation where we have this interconnected markets, where in this case, natural gas is a byproduct of oil production and it has, something has to be done with it. And, and in many instances, up to a, a, a billion cubic feet per day is just being burned uh, because they need to get rid of it and they don't have pipeline capacity to take it off. Now that will be solved in the next two to three years, but that is the situation today. That is why you can have in California, which is a very short flight from Texas, um, natural gas selling for $50 to $5 per million PTO. And in the Permian Basin at the Waha Hub, you can't give it away. It traded negative around the same time. It traded negative in the Permian Basin, I, I believe in November. And in December in California, natural gas is trading for $55. Any, like an alien coming down, from you know another planet and observing this situation would be very confused by it is the way that I would describe it. Keith, I, I have to send it your way now because we just touched on so many kind of interesting points, but also interesting in relation to gold because we talked about bid-ask spreads, we talked about arbitrage, but also we talked about a glut where there was this kind of, hey, you know, let's produce as much of this natural gas as we can. And the next thing you know, the demand wasn't there and there was a glut. Why aren't we seeing gluts in gold, Keith? We've been accumulating gold for, so far as we know, 5,000 years. And um, there's no limit to the accumulation. The concept of glut is inapplicable to uh, to gold. 
um, which is, of course, the property you'd expect out of something that's money. It's not gold isn't brought to be consumed. Natural gas uh, is brought to be consumed. And to Doomberg's point, it's kind of difficult and expensive to store it in the meantime. It's not quite as pure in that sense as electricity, but it's definitely not a liquid that you just stick in a tank. And so, um, you know, if there's too much of it and your tank is full, nothing you can do with it, you flare it off. And um, nobody ever has that problem with gold ever. Nobody ever runs out of storage space for gold. Nobody runs out of desire to have more of it physically. It's so expensive that uh, unless you're really, 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 really rich, you'd never have, I mean, a cubic meter of gold is a couple tons, I think. Um, you know, it's so incredibly heavy um, that uh, you just don't have that issue. And of course, gold being so expensive per ounce, the, um, you know, the cost of shipping it to anywhere else in the world is so low relative to the value of the gold that if there were a, you know, one area where gold was slightly more valued, one area where it's slightly less valued, uh, it's easy to exploit that arbitrage and buy it where it's cheaper. So you end up with a pretty uniform pricing, unless governments tax, you know, or, or otherwise limit the import of gold, you know, some places like uh, Vietnam, places like India, where they play around with the taxes, you know, when the tax is high, then you can see a local price disparity that's not arbitrageable, but otherwise, um, you know, the arbitrage is there. And uh, I, I wrote an article talking about um, efficient markets and dismissing the idea that efficient markets means that somehow everybody knows what the right price is or that it's priced in. But I said, what efficiency really means is that the price is uniform, you know, pretty much everywhere. If you saw that, I think I used the example of wheat in London as, as you know, 20 pounds and in uh, York, it's, it's two pounds, there's something wrong. And Dumerg's describing that exact wrongness in natural gas. And of course the answer is, you know, New England has, has been, you know, famously fighting you know, against pipelines for years or decades, I guess. And that's what the wrongness is. And so you can't bring the natural gas from here to there. It's not arbitrageable. And, um, you know, retail people who don't realize that may, uh, may make a bet based on a simple error. Well, Dubberg, I want to jump now to that kind of very core issue, which is that it's not technically infeasible. It's not physically infeasible, but politically, a lot of these options are infeasible. So I want to ask you now, do you see a nuclear renaissance as even possible? Or are there such significant barriers to this occurring that we shouldn't be thinking about this at all? So um, before I dive into that, I just want to add to what Keith just said, because I think it's a very important point, if you don't mind. Um, we, we wrote a piece called Coking Gold back in November of 2021, where we described a really amazing phenomenon where the price of gold in London and the price of gold in New York diverged by 6%, which was unheard of. And it had to do with obviously COVID and, and so on and the inability to fly these gold bars to close that arbitrage. And, um, and it actually came down to the specifications of the contract where in, uh, I believe London was 400 ounce gold bars and New York uh, was 100. And so you had people who had bars that could be sort of resmelted um, capturing this $100 a ton, $100 an ounce arbitrage that opened up, which was historic. And in the natural gas market, we're talking about multiples of hundreds of percent um, based on very small geographic differences. And so Keith is 100% correct in that the efficiency of a market should be measured by depth of liquidity and bid ask spread uh, and, and swiftness of arbitrage. Because that, that deviation only lasted for a day or two before it was swiftly closed, even in the middle of COVID. 
And so I think that's a very, very important point, and one that's especially important when you consider natural gas. You know, coal can be shipped everywhere. Oil is a little bit trickier. Natural gas is even harder. And that's why we see these interconnections. And it, it makes for fascinating analysis and, 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 and often provides interesting investment opportunities. So to your question now on nuclear, I just want to make sure I got that, that point on the board. Um, it depends on which country you're talking about. And it depends on um, your time frame. So there is no path to significant decarbonization that does not involve nuclear power. And so either we will stop caring about decarbonization or we will revert to nuclear power. And um, the only question really that matters is um, when will that um, realization happen? So either we will stop worrying about carbon emissions and just burn coal and natural gas and oil, which many in the emerging economies have decided to do, especially based on Germany's behavior in the past 12 months, um, or uh, we will make a swift um, you know, um, reconciliation with the benefits of nuclear power. And I, I, sh I, could, I could recommend a great podcast I listened to um, on a road trip recently this week. Uh, Dr. Chris Kiefer and uh, the Decouple podcast had, um, had um, the, the, the sort of person in charge of nuclear power from the United Arab Emirates, and they just brought on three of their four, you know, world scale 1.4 gigawatt reactors on time, on budget. And they have given this gift of, of baseload power for their relatively small country and population for the next 60 years. And, um, and they're basically going to meet all of their net zero goals um, through the effective use of, of nuclear power. Like we've often argued that if nuclear power was invented today, it would be hailed as a civilization-saving technology, um, and we would be implementing it post-haste. And, and it is. It truly is. Um, there, is no, there are no technical challenges or even financial challenges that would prevent us from achieving much of the stated objectives of the um, sort of environmental uh, alarmists around, you know, carbon emissions um, that, that just can't be solved with nuclear power. And, and so their continued opposition to nuclear power tells you, in my view, at least, it, that it's not really about, no, um, right, right. it's not really about um, reducing carbon emissions. It's about reducing people. It's about re it's lowering standard of livings and, and preserving nature for nature's sake and minimizing humanity's impact on it. Uh, there is no uh, acknowledgement that there's two parts of this equation. There is the total standard of living we could deliver to all the humans on Earth divided by our carbon emissions. And if that is the equation we wish to uh, arrange our society around, then let's let's not forget that there's two parts to that equation. And, and so um, something will break in every country in the world. Either they will abandon carbon emissions or they will embrace nuclear power. Because there is no middle ground. It just can't happen. This fantasy of 100% renewable, completely intermittent, um, you know, with uh, magical batteries that are, uh, you know, immaculately appearing without having to do any mining or spending all of the diesel fuel it takes to do that mining is a fallacy. And even just this week, the Biden administration with their new EPA uh, mileage standards that essentially force something like 65% of all new cars sales in 2032 to be electric. It's just impossible. It's not going to work. It's it's provably impossible, um, and so there will come a point where the pain associated with trying to do the impossible becomes intolerable to the populace. We're not at that point yet. We're still living in a fantasy world where Biden thinks that administratively, by diktat, they can completely transform an industry as vital to people's standards of living as the transportation sector. 
So that's great. There's lots of investment opportunities that come from that. Lots of money will be wasted. Lots of grift will happen. There will be some, um, some fantastic opportunities to uh, create wealth for you, but integrated across society, this is provably a disaster. And we just keep deciding to go down this road, especially when we're actually insolvent. Like we're talking about misappropriation of trillions of dollars of, of real money at a time where we can barely afford to, to, to print uh, the debt that we already owe. And, and yet we all just sort of accept this as table stakes, background noise, the energy companies will still keep producing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, to, your, to your point about uh, math, and I, I agree with you that the real goal is to reduce people and not to reduce carbon. And so they, anything that actually works, they oppose, and everything that they promote is promoted because it doesn't work. It's That's a feature, not a bug. But there was a um, infamous picture that went around of some protest, and I don't know if this was um, a fake or if this was real, but um, it certainly captured the sentiment of a lot of folks in the protest movement that this woman holding the sign said, who cares about oil, we ride the bus. That about, <laughs> that about captures it for me. There, there's such a, a degree of magical thinking that I, I think the bet you're talking about, uh, Doomberg, is a bet as, you know, when will people sort of give up this magical thinking and start to actually look at reality and, you know, is there a pain point sufficiently great? Like, you know, is Germany close to that with, you know, people freezing in the winter? <laughs> Does freezing in the winter make people, um, you know, give up some of this magical thinking? Ho hopefully it does. Otherwise, we're in, we're in deep trouble. So if we canvass the world for the state of magical thinking, um, China has none of it. China is, is building out coal at a pace that dwarfs the pace with which the rest of the world is trying to wean itself off of coal. Um, Pakistan got burned by LNG and Germany. Um, South Africa is in the middle of an energy crisis and whether or not this, the genesis of that crisis long predates the current situation. The current situation is an awfully convenient thing to blame uh, as they pivot away from um, their sort of carbon commitments. Pakistan, by the way, quarter billion people, not a small country. Indonesia, uh, building a green energy park to get all the metals that are needed to, to facilitate this energy transition, quote unquote, um, that green energy park magically is powered by coal. And um, Pakistan <laughs> has, has made a commitment to um, wean itself off of LNG to never be burned again and to accelerate its domestic production of coal. Even Germany, whatever they're saying, forget what they're saying. 16 gigawatts of coal came back online uh, at the snap of a finger. At the first sight of crisis. Germany retreated to the coal mines with the speed and efficiency of the evacuation of Dunkirk. Like they, they, they stepped back from the abyss. Now, the worst case scenario is did materialize, thankfully, but they just closed their last three remaining nuclear power plants. Go back 90 days and rerun the European winter without those nuclear power plants, and it's not a pretty sight. They're going into next winter, assuming a three sigma warm winter is going to be the base case. What if we get a three sigma cold winter? Like, and we're not cheering for that, by the way. Like there's this conundrum yeah. that you have as an analyst, which is like, I don't want catastrophe to be proven so that we could be proven right. I would much rather be called an alarmist, um, which it, we have been accused of being when, you know, people weren't freezing in Germany this year because it was a three sigma warm weather event to which we say, great, this is the desired outcome. We're not sitting around here hoping to be proven right at the expense of the suffering of millions of people or thousands of our subscribers to make it real for our business. Like we have a very healthy subscriber base in Europe and we would like for them to be able to afford 
um, Dimberg. Um, and so um, our hope is that the leaders won't take all of the wrong lessons from this narrow escape, which can be attributed to good fortune. But the early evidence is that they are in fact going to do so. And so there will come a time when we have a three sigma weather event to the reverse, and um, then we will see. And, and whether that will be the maximum pain point, which truly causes people to flip. But look, India, China, Brazil, Pakistan, Indonesia, the Middle East, South Africa, none of them are going to give two Fs about climate anymore. Like Germany's behavior compared to what Germany said was the aha moment for the rest of the world. And we're talking about four to five billion people. And so that's over. Like they're just not going to meet their climate commitments and they are dwarfing any savings we can have. So in this famous debate I had with Professor Keene um, on Jack Farley's show, um, we're going to run the experiment, like brace for impact. If, if the, if the alarmist predictions do come to pass, then we're just going to have to bear and react to them because that's what's coming. We're not going to cut carbon emissions meaningfully, period. And Joe Biden himself, at the first sign of $5 a gallon gas last year, emptied the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to the tune of a million barrels a day. And the recent uh, production cut by OPEC Plus is purely because they're mad that he won't refill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve now that prices are down to more manageable levels. Like, Joe Biden doesn't believe what he says. And he did that ahead of a, a very critical midterm election. And he was right. And it worked. Um, and that just proves to you how little pain is necessary for even the progressive politicians in the U.S. to pivot. Talk about a pivot. Joe Biden pivoted on energy, demanding the oil companies produce more, flooding the market with, with oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserves, approving the Willow Project in Alaska. Like $5 gallon gasoline so scared Joe Biden that he abandoned his more radical environmental support uh, on a moment's notice. And that's just undeniable. I, I was just going to agree with everything you said to add one thing about um, nobody should be cheering for essentially the collapse of the greatest civilization that ever occurred on Earth. Um, that's what makes it so difficult psychologically to speculate on some of these destructive things. You know, if you're speculating on, and, and therefore you have real money riding on the outcome, then you, you start to find yourself psychologically wanting to cheer this horrible thing. And um, I, I remember retweeting, I don't remember who it was that said it, that uh, you know, nuclear war uh, between North and South Korea would be good for gold. And I just went <laughs> off. I retweeted that and uh, several times with different comments, created a thread, just like, have you not, you know, reached the point where you realize just how mad this is? Like, sure, you might have a $5,000 gold price if, if nukes are being exchanged between Seoul and Pyongyang. But is that really what anybody would want? So it's a fantastic point. And I would say it comes down to the difference between speculating and hedging. So I'm all yes. for hedging tail risk. So here's the example I would use. Every year, I pay $2,000 to insure my home, roughly. That's probably pretty typical depending on where you live and so on. Um, when my house doesn't burn down that year, I don't begrudge that $2,000. And I'm not hoping that my home burns down so I can collect on that insurance. Now, that's certainly a crime that some people commit, especially when you know the value is, you know, you, you get what I'm saying. But by and large, most homeowners aren't cheering for a fire so they can collect on their insurance. And <laughs> what you're describing is exactly that phenomenon, which makes no sense to me. So I own gold, both physical and when I have excess funds that I'd like to park in gold, I, I express that through 
I, I'd usually just invest in FIS, you know, the, the Sprott Physical Uranium, uh, Sprott Physical Gold Trust. And, um, but I, I'm not hoping that gold will suddenly be worth $10,000 because in the scenario where gold is worth $10,000, A, I don't have enough of it in gold. And B, we got bigger problems to worry about. Societal breakdown, so on and so on. Like, I'd like to live in a world where my kids can be educated and be upstanding citizens and have families and, and enjoy a good life, the precious life that I've been able to both live and to deliver the, to them as children. Like, this is what we should all be hoping for. We should not be hoping for a calamity to, to either validate an investment or to prove a thesis intellectually. Um, and we've been very consistent on that point, even at the peak of the European crisis, that we're not we're we're actively opposing uh, a further contagion in this crisis because there's no no winners in that. Like again, it you know it, owning 100 percent of nothing um, is still nothing. And and you know very famously, of course, Jim Cramer, who kept catches a lot of heat on uh, on Twitter, most of it justified. Um, I remember I remember distinctly him on CNBC, you know, maybe a decade ago, talking about the nuclear trade. So. Um, and not like uranium, but as in like nuclear war. And he said, it was a very brilliant line. He said, anytime I saw stocks crashing on increased possibility of nuclear war between the USSR and the United States, I bought that dip every time. Because if I'm wrong, who cares? I'm dead. <laughs> and if I'm right, um, I'm going to make more money. And, and, and that's actually the way to look at the trade is when you have full panic and possible contagion, as we learned at the bottom of 0809. Um, I have a distinct memory of COVID. This is a great story to tell. Um, at the, at the peak of the COVID panic, um, a company I've followed for years, Tech Resources, you may know them. They're a, a great mining company in Canada, bulletproof balance sheet, copper, um, uh, zinc, and coking coal, a little bit of gold and silver mixed in there. Great leadership, totally steady balance sheet. That thing was trading at $5 or $6 a share. And I knew that company inside out. And it was at the peak of the panic in COVID. And my good friend, Tony Greer, who runs TG Macro, was making the call of his life, saying that this is the bottom, the Fed has saved us, you want to go as long as you can get. And I'm hovering over the mouse, debating whether to put a significant portion of my net worth in tech resources. And I couldn't convince myself of that Jim Cramer nuclear trade. And uh, one of the biggest regrets of my life, of course, because, and I, by the way, as it went from six to 10 to 15, I felt like I'd missed it, you know, sort of classic retail mindset. And as we sit here today, um, that stock is trading for $45.21. And and I, I, I knew the company and I had convinced myself that um, the worst, the biggest sin was I didn't buy the bonds. The bonds were trading for 65 cents on the dollar and these, these were money good. Like they, they had maybe 4 billion in debt and 40 billion in assets. And there was no scenario where those, those bonds weren't gonna be made whole. And I didn't even buy those because you had become convinced that while nuclear war is happening, you know, like the Jim Cramer trade. And so to your point, um, I've learned through that experience that when you see something truly on sale and there's a panic going on, you should buy it and, and you should not be hoping for panic so that some trade that you have uh, will do good. You know, like uh, famously um, Bill Ackman going on TV and crying about the, the end of the world while he had all of these, you know, um, credit default swaps that made his year. And it, very, very fascinating thing to consider. And, and we actually reverse that now, which is when we see true panic. And if we're wrong, it means the world's over. That's when you go all in. Because if the world's over, who cares? <laughs> I have a, I think I, I got a famous quote told to me one time, which is that never bet on the end of the world because it only happens once and you can't cash in. Um, okay. And I think, I think it's an interesting kind of discussion topic. But Duneberg, while we have you, I, I want to ask you at least one more question here. We're in the gold business, obviously. We're, we're a little bit different. 
We do investing and financing in gold. So we pay a gold fixed income. And one of the ways that we do that is by financing miners. Um, and I wanna ask a, a question here for gold financing, specifically with this green energy transition, if it is to happen, um, does mining see an inflow of investing dollars? And what about gold mining specifically? Now we, we do our financing in gold, so maybe we're a little bit different than the rest of that business, but do you see the rest of that mining business getting dollar inflows? I would say, um, as a general rule, yes. Um, well, put it this way, the amount of money that is being thrown at this from the Inflation Reduction Act alone and the amount of co-investment that will flow from that is being significantly underestimated um, in our view by the market. We're talking hundreds of billions of dollars. Now, whether or not permitting and all those other things slow that down to the point where maybe it's not as big as the ticker might say it would be, you know, the sticker price. Um, for gold, um, I would say the thing that I would look at, and I don't know the answer, I'm just thinking on my feet, is there's an awful lot of gold as a byproduct for some of these mines that are producing copper and zinc and the other metals that you would need. And if I were looking for somewhere where the market might be underestimating the impact of the green transition on the supply of gold, it would be there. Um, my experience in mining, I grew up in a mining town. My father worked at a mine and then I had, you know, obviously I, I know tech resources and other miners and studied them very carefully, um, is that there's an awful lot of byproducts and, and the piece we just wrote, of course, about natural gas and byproduct economics and the need to put these things somewhere can really distort markets. That's what I would be trying to model to try to get an edge on the market to understand hey, if we're going to truly bring on A, B, C, D, and F mine, what is the percent gold? What are they doing with it? Do they have a royalty agreement? Can you take it? Like That's where I would see the impact of the green energy transition impacting gold versus mining gold for gold's sake, uh, where gold is the primary product of a mine. I, I would be looking at byproduct and whether some of those flows might be underestimated vis-a-vis -vis the market. But again, that's just my sort of on my feet answer to your question. Thunberg, I want to ask you a final question that we ask all our guests, which is what's something that I should be asking all the future guests of the Gold Exchange podcast? Uh, we've had Brent Johnson come on and say, well, what about all the foreign central banks? How are they going to get out of it? Not just focusing on the Fed. We've had Jeff Snyder come on and ask, okay, what about the euro dollar market? Uh, Danielle DiMartino Booth was just on. She wanted to know about the debt ceiling. So, Doomberg, what is a question we should be asking all of our future guests? Um what is your short and medium term view on whether we will be in a macro environment of relative energy excess or uh, energy uh, scarcity? Because we do believe that that is uh, the first in the tree diagram of analysis that one should do at the macro level, um, because they're completely different universes that have different sets of rules. And if you don't know in which setting you're in, it can be very challenging. And so I would say a year ago, we were in a period of energy scarcity and, and now, um, we're in a period of relative energy excess because as evidenced by the fact that OPEC has to cut in order to maintain prices um, anywhere near they would need for their domestic uh, budgetary needs. And so um, keeping an eye on the relative um, sort of energy production matrix um, is and what their view is on that and how whether we are in a period of energy scarcity or abundance would affect the base of their analysis because, you know, people are gold experts or interest rate experts or pick your favorite, um, have they considered the energy angle uh, to their macro view? And if not, why not? And, and, and so that's what, that's what I would be um, asking future guests.
Doomberg, where can people follow more of your amazing work? And if they want to read you and obviously follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? Yeah, so our primary outlet is at doomberg.substack.com. Uh, we do have a Twitter account at Doomberg T, um, but uh, we're doing less on Twitter, if I'm being totally honest. And, and Substack, of course, has just released this notes program, which is kind of feels like Twitter, but not really. And um, we're actually writing our next piece on the Twitter Substack wars and our view um, being sort of big on both Twitter and Substack and what both should be doing and, and what the future of content creation looks like. Um, it's a really fascinating time and not to sort of spoil the piece, but um, as computers and technology and AI take over more and more of what humans have to do for work, we're seeing an explosion in the content creator space as people yearn for these things that make us actually human. And, um, and we think that's a huge mega trend and, and the resolution of the Substack, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, social media wars is going to define the internet for the next 10 years. And, and it's pretty amazing to be in the middle of it. And that's the subject of our next piece. And so we would prefer people go to doomberg.substack.com and follow us there. Free subscribers get pretty lengthy previews to all of our pieces. Paid subscribers get the full piece and the ability to comment and interact with the team. And we're also now on notes, Substack's new sort of Twitter clone, I guess, for lack of a better phrase. But that's very, very new um, and kind of interesting and cute and innocent now. And, and it's only a matter of time before it all gets ruined, I suppose. But um, but that's where you can find us. And I, look, guys, uh, Benjamin Keith is really fantastic. And I appreciate the invite and very, very much enjoyed the discussion. So thanks for having me. Well, Doomberg, thanks so much. Thanks for coming on to the Gold Exchange podcast. And I know these issues aren't going away. So we'll have to see you again sometime soon. You bet. This episode was brought to you by Monetary Metals. Monetary Metals is a different kind of gold company. Others buy and sell gold. Monetary Metals operates the Gold Yield Marketplace, a platform of products that offer a yield on gold paid in gold to investors and institutions, and are gold financing simplified. Reliable financing denominated in gold with a built-in hedge for gold-using and gold-producing businesses. To learn more, visit www.monetary-metals.com. See you next time.